Welcome to Snack Break. We speak to experts mostly about policy, but also about snacks. With a population of nearly 1.4 billion and a massive economy, China is a big deal. And its relationship with the U.S. is complicated. China represents a major market for U.S. goods, though many believe it seeks to displace the U.S. as the primary power in the Asia-Pacific region. As an ally of North Korea, China has frustrated U.S. attempts to pressure the North Koreans to denuclearize. And after flexing their muscles in the South and East China Seas, China also seeks to gain influence around the world through its $1 trillion, One Belt, One Road economic investment initiative. Furthermore, at the end of February, the Chinese Communist Party proposed to abolish presidential term limits, paving the way for President Xi Jinping to be the most powerful Chinese ruler since Mao. What does all this mean going forward for the U.S.? And what can we learn from Chinese history? And do we have anything to fear? This is Snack Break. I'm Marut Mukherjee. And here to help us understand Chinese policy is Dr. Liz Perry, a professor of government at Harvard University, director of the Harvard Yenching Institute, and author and editor of over 20 books on China and Chinese history. Liz, thank you so much for joining. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. All right, let's start with the most basic question about China. What does China want? China officially wants the China dream. And what is the China dream? It's not the American dream. It sounds the American, a lot like it. Sounds yeah. like it. But the American dream, I believe, is a car in every garage. White picket fences. And white picket fences. Golden retreat. Your own yeah. house, your own mortgage, so on and so forth. Uh, the Chinese dream is a collective dream. It is presented by the government to the Chinese people as what any good Chinese should want, and that is a strong and rich China. So it's a sense of national progress, not individual progress. Now, how many individuals share that? I can't tell you because uh, we don't have good information on that. Um, but I think there is within China a general desire for a country that is stronger on the world stage, a country that is no longer humiliated as it has felt it has been for the past century and a half. But there are lots of differences within China about how that should be achieved and how ultimately the Chinese dream should really look. I mean, how does the Chinese dream be, if you want status or national prosperity, doesn't that depend on the individual dream? Doesn't that require each person to have prosperity or to be rich in that sense? Well, I think that the Chinese government certainly doesn't see a contradiction between individual people being rich and the country being rich. Um, but it is really trying to uh, get people to have a nationalistic uh, sentiment about China and to view this as a collective more than simply an individual enterprise. China is still, by per capita income, an extremely poor nation, $4,000 per capita approximately. It has a long way to go to catch up with the advanced developed world in that respect. Um, but the Chinese economy, of course, is the second biggest in the world, by some accounts already the biggest in the world. And so if we think of this as national, in national terms, right. it's on a scale that's very different from the individual level and that's very inspiring to people who are Chinese. What, what does this mean for the United States? Um, if the United States has a greater appreciation of the national, of the Chinese national identity for these sorts of national aspirations, 
Does should should what should the U.S. do? Uh, you know, there's this concern that the growing power will want more say in its neighborhood and in the rest of the world, and this threat that people talk about to the international order, or global governance, and economic systems and institutions. Should the United States? How how should that sort of historical narrative uh, inform U.S. policy? Well, I think it's difficult to give a simple answer to that question because it's not always obvious how the Chinese are going to interpret their own history. As we mentioned, it is a very complicated history. It's a history in which China, for much of its um, existence, was not a very strong power. So it was humiliated in the mid-19th century, but in fact, for many periods before that, it had divided and then reunited, divided again, and so forth. So being aware of Chinese history is aware also of the fact, I think, that this country has certain fragilities within it and certain tendencies toward divisiveness that perhaps make us understand a little more why the Chinese narrative uh, puts so much emphasis on not being humiliated and uh, on being united. Um, so I don't think that we need always fear when Chinese rhetoric is um, as seemingly arrogant, or as Chinese would say, proud, uh, as it comes across. I think sometimes that's for a domestic audience uh, to make Chinese feel better about a situation that they're really quite frightened about. Um, it, it of course depends on how the leaders in place in China interpret this history. And we've seen in the leaders of the PRC, from Mao, Deng Xiaoping, um, uh, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, Xi Jinping, all quite different approaches to the world. That's been partly because of the level of development at which China has been under each of those leaders, but it's also been partially a reflection of the temperament and the ambitions of those individual leaders. So I don't think we can simply say because history is very important and because Chinese culture is really important to the Chinese leadership as uh, political discourse that that necessarily means that China is gonna be a threat on the world stage. On the other hand, when we look at Xi Jinping himself, I think we can state with some degree of confidence that this is a highly ambitious leader who is ambitious not only domestically but internationally and uh, who does want uh, a world in which China is going to be a much more prominent and much more decisive player on the world stage. Yeah, so let's talk about Xi. Chinese Communist Party has announced this proposal to abolish presidential term limits and this allows Xi Jinping uh, to become uh, leader for life or president for life. Uh, what do we make of that? Well, it might or might not allow him to become leader for life. It is actually, it's being framed about term limits. And so it would at the end of each five-year term, nevertheless, um, even though um, there one would have to not resign at the end of two terms, it doesn't mean that there wouldn't still be terms, as I understand it. Um, so uh, he might or might not be renewed in the future. But clearly, it's indicative of his ambition to have the option of remaining mm -hmm. for life. 
And that's very worrisome to me as someone who was hopeful in the 1980s and 1990s that China was becoming more institutionalized politically. I never was under the illusion that it was really democratizing, but it seemed to be regularizing and having a kind of institutionalized succession process was very important to that, both term limits and age limits. Um, and the uh, threat to do away with that, I think, is very troubling particularly to Chinese uh, intellectuals. I don't know how ordinary Chinese feel about this. I was intrigued the other day in my seminar when some of my students whose parents are uh, Chinese and are in China, some of my students told me that their parents uh, who live in the countryside were very enthusiastic, enthusiastic. About, about this. Really? Um, they were delighted that this strong leader could really remain in place uh, for longer than five more years. But I have not heard that sentiment from any intellectuals in China, from any university professors, or from the government officials who I know well, who are personal close friends. Um, from all those quarters, regardless of whether people are on the left or on the right politically, there has been a real sense that this is not good for China. Yeah, an economist had an article that said it, that the U.S. doesn't just have an economic rival, it now is, having, is going to have an ideological rival, which sort of smacks of this kind of Cold War discourse of, and I mean, not necessarily good versus evil, but in a sense, two different ideological camps. Do you think that holds water? Well, I, I do think this is of concern to us. I do think China under Xi Jinping is increasingly making an effort to present itself as an alternative to the United States. Whether I would call that ideological or not is uh, clearly China would like it to be ideological and that is why Xi Jinping's own thought for socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era, mm -hmm. it is formally known, was written into the Constitution, the first time since Mao that a sitting uh, top official has had his thought written into the Constitution. But I've spent a lot of time reading his works, and I have a hard time saying exactly what that ideology is, to mm -hmm. be honest, beyond the idea that the Chinese Communist Party should really be in control. Um, socialism with Chinese characteristics seems to really mean the party has to be play a stronger role in people's lives. It has to play a stronger role in universities. It has to play a stronger role in the economy. It cannot retreat under forces of marketization and so on. When Deng Xiaoping uh, coined the phrase socialism with Chinese characteristics, he was basically talking about market reforms. So we would still keep socialism, which meant rule by the Chinese Communist Party, but uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics meant that unlike the old Soviet Union, this would not be a command economy, it would be a marketized economy. Under Xi Jinping, the reinterpretation of socialism with Chinese characteristics seems to be the emphasis on the Communist Party, not on the market mm -hmm. side of this. Um, but, um, but it doesn't seem to be very well developed ideologically. That is to say, it's basically about how a Leninist party is in control. And until uh, it develops some kinds of real political values um, that, are in, that are new and distinctive and appealing to people, it seems to me it's hard to see it as an ideology with a great deal of appeal. So she has articulated what he calls 12 socialist core values. Most of those are what we would 
consider to be Western values of democracy and freedom and the like. And so what's really distinctive about this ideology, except that we're to have a very strong Leninist party in control, uh, is not yet clear. It, it, the extension of these fears, that there is the, are these two camps, uh, it's not necessarily just existentially you have another country that is an alternative, but it, that, that, that that country will affect the global governance system, that it will affect uh, the organization of international institutions. Um, this, this idea that China might challenge the international order. I mean, there's, there's these, uh, you know, the, the, the lead economist article, the lead foreign affairs article is that how the West got China wrong, how the U.S. got China wrong, and the implication being that they are going to, they're going to you know, uh, operate according to their own rules, uh, not according to the rules uh, and we, uh, you know, that the West set, set up in the 1940s. Uh, do you think that's right? Do you think that, or do you think that's a little exaggerated? I think that's a little exaggerated. I think we're living in this highly ironic world where it's the United States that is torpedoing that uh, post-World War II order that the United States put in place with Bretton Woods and the IMF and so forth, and which has served us very well uh, for the past half century plus, and which has served most of the rest of the world well, and which has served China well since the implementation of reforms in the late 70s and early 1980s. And although, yes, I think much of this uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics is for a domestic audience to make China strong, that Xi Jinping is um, not being duplicitous when he goes to Davos and speaks um, in positive terms about globalization and the world order because he's quite aware that this world order has been really good mm -hmm. for China's economic development. With the United States now threatening tariffs on steel mm. and so forth, saying that trade wars, trade wars are good things uh, for the international economy, it seems to me we're in this very bizarre situation where it's we ourselves who um, may be the biggest threat to the world mm. order, and China um, actually is uh, quite anxious to maintain much of the status quo at the present. Now, who knows, uh, a decade, two decades from now, um, what that will mean. And certainly you mentioned One Belt, One Road mm -hmm. initiative, which is one example of Xi Jinping's ambition for the future, putting huge amounts of money into this infrastructure across the world. But let's not forget, at the time of the international financial crisis in 2008, people were criticizing China for not investing enough in the global economy, saying China was keeping all of its money at home instead of investing abroad. Now when China does it, of course, in a way that China views will be good for its own um, future energy security and the like. Nevertheless, um, it perhaps is not entirely fair to criticize uh, China for finally spending outside its own borders. I mean, the main issue is that we got to stay number one, right? Just tell me that the U.S. is going to be number one in 10 or 20 years. I mean, we still got, right? We still got uh, innovation. We still got the best universities. We've got, we're the home of the Big Mac. I right? think 10 so, or 20 years, you know, we might be okay. Yeah, after um, that. After that, I'm not so oh, sure. Don't say that. <laughs> well, I mean, this is. Do you think that prosperity? I mean, because this is this China is challenging all these political science theories about whether or not prosperity leads to democratization, whether or not liberalization or opening up to the other to the other countries of the world will will lead to these sorts of things. Whether or not uh, it's, you know embedded liberalism or all these things that uh, will could could affect a country like China, we are are getting challenged by the status quo. Do you, is that right? I think that is right. I think we have 
two huge challenges to that kind of conventional Western social science. One is China, which is getting increasingly rich, but seems to be getting less and less mm -hmm. on the road to democracy as it does so. The other is India, which was never rich and yet has maintained a remarkably robust democracy for all this period of time. And both of those countries are countries with very rich historical resources to draw on, distinctive forms of state society relations that are very, very different from each other and that I think give it the capacity to do things in ways that our sort of routine social science has a very hard time capturing. Um, but um, on the university side, I must say I am worried. Yeah. And um, part of it, I, I believe, is our own fault because we've bought into these ridiculous ratings, rankings of uh, global research universities. The Chinese have figured out how to game that system. The Chinese Communist Party invests in precisely the metrics that raise the rankings of its universities. And it's not a trivial thing. We could laugh at it and say, well, it doesn't make any difference if Tsinghua is ranked above MIT yeah. or Beida among Harvard. Right? And we have families all around the world who are trying to figure out where to invest their tuition dollars, because mm. they can send their kids to uh, higher education anywhere. And right now, the US is the best bet for them. And American higher education has benefited enormously from the fact that the best and the brightest and the richest um, come to American higher education. But once we are eclipsed, if we are eclipsed by Chinese higher education, that puts an advantage uh, in the court of Beijing and Shanghai that can be very problematic for, for us. So I really do worry on a number of different levels. I think we would be foolish to be complacent about all this. Well, how do you, how do you feel about eating right now? Eating hungry? sounds good. You sound like that? Eating okay. Eating always sounds good. So, hey, you've, we, got a, we got a special, Isabel, do you mind bringing out the, uh, somebody thank you so much. So this is <laughs> a Japanese, your favorite snack is a Japanese savory snack called senbei. That's correct. It's a rice cracker, essentially, uh, but it comes in all sorts of varieties. Well, these look very good. Very nice job. Is it? Yeah, yeah, very nice job. Oh, there. Do you like these? Yeah, I mean, it's like, and I've recently been investing in rice cakes. I mean, these are basically flavored. Yeah. Kind of, these are a little bit denser. Um, it looks like they've got little, like, soy sauce bombs or something in here. Or some sort yes, of um, I'm not savory flavoring. I'm not sure what's um, in these, but basically the senbei are rice crackers mm. and then. Um, deep fat fried often okay. and or baked yeah. and then they often have some kind of soy covering sometimes um, seaweed as well mm. as a first on snack rook you've brought your own rice treats now what are, tell me what these are these are all varieties of sunday so here are ones that are called bean like i've seen those little things in uh, like american airlines has their like packaged snacks oh, it'll yeah. be like a chex yeah, yeah. mix and they'll throw yeah. in those things and i've mm -hmm. always wondered what they are in their well, japanese rice snacks why don't you you right, know here, let's get it oh okay yeah let's get it in there we'll give you a chance to grab a handful oh, of them yeah no, and for you sure. can see what they're like no you got and, and these little these little boomerangs these little mm -hmm. right, they have know. a little a little bit of spice in them. They oh, be, are they a little bit spicy? Maybe not. Yeah. These usually they do. I don't know for sure. Uh, a little bit of kick. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you, uh, how did you get involved in in the Japanese snacks? What? Uh, oh, I grew up in Japan. Ah, so right. So you've been having these for 
for many decades. For five, six years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Twenty years. Yeah. This is just as a remind you of childhood. So, is that is that what? Uh... Well, probably partly because of growing up in Japan, I've just always had a preference for savory over sweet mm. snacks and. Soy sauce to me just tastes remarkably I mean, good. I, I have it straight Rice sometimes, you know, remarkably just straight good. from the bottle. <laughs> um, well, I don't go quite that far, but um, but I do think it's um, it's tasty. Yeah, and um, it goes great. very well with beer, and especially Japanese beer if, if you like it. Mm, a missed opportunity. Oh, yeah, we could. that could have been really fun. <laughs> Be our first alcoholic snack break. <laughs> well, you'll have to invite me back. <laughs> yes, I will. <laughs> I got a question for you. We got, we got just a few minutes left. Do you consider yourself more a historian or a political scientist? Um, well, I consider myself more a political scientist because I've never actually taken any graduate work in history, and all my degrees, undergraduate and graduate, are in political science. I've probably been offered more jobs in history than in political science, to be honest, but I've never actually accepted them. I've yeah. only accepted ones that are political science or international studies because my own training having been in political science, I like training students in political science and I like teaching courses in political science. And actually, honestly, about half my writing, I consciously am gearing it more toward a historical audience, historian's yeah. audience, and the other half toward a political science uh, audience. Yeah. And um, so, I like combining feel like the two of them. I like with history, political science. I, you know, the the I, do you think that historians and political scientists should weigh in on curse on policy debates more often than they do? Um, well, I don't know if they should, but um, I think it's refreshing when they do. Let me mm. put it that way. Mm. Um, you know, I think uh, scholars. Should weigh in if they feel comfortable mm -hmm. and should not feel pressure to do so if they don't. Right. And that's one of the great things about the American Academy, in my view, is that scholars can maintain as much distance from the kind of policy government arena as they want to, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. Or they can really try to engage with it, and that's fine too. Um, one of the things that I always find a little bit uncomfortable about the Chinese academic world is that academics there tend to be so interested in um, having their ideas incorporated yeah. as government policy. And I think sometimes that can be detrimental to scholarship mm -hmm. if you're writing and speaking in ways that you hope are going to capture public mm -hmm. attention. And so I think people should do what they feel comfortable with in all of this. But it doesn't just have to be people who are trained in policy or in security studies who should be commenting on contemporary affairs. Well, we're so lucky to have you join us today and talk a little bit about Chinese policy and your research and your thoughts on everything that's going on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you very much. Thank this you. This was great fun. All right. This episode of Snack Break was produced with the help of the Media Production Center, Hauser Studio, Tara Cavanaugh, and Harris Pasoltiner. Introduction music was composed by Evan Fennessy. To learn more about the show or watch episodes rather than listen to them, Find us on YouTube or visit our website at snackbreakshow.com.